One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When the pressure's on, actually, who can you count on? Uh, and we know that we can always count on Australia, and I hope Australia knows that they can always count on the UK. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, the Right Honourable Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the UK's Minister of State for the Indo-Pacific, joins Professor Rory Metcalf to discuss Britain's tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, AUKUS, and Australia-UK relations. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome to our studio here in Canberra, uh, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who's the Minister of State for the Indo-Pacific from the United Kingdom. Uh, It's great to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you're visiting Australia, and I guess it's intriguing at one level for us to identify that Britain now has a Minister of State for the Indo-Pacific. I think that's a a pretty strong signal about intent uh, for foreign and external policy in this part of the world. But it would be really useful to begin by, I guess, hearing from you what, what the intention is for this role, what you see as your mission. Uh, thank you. So I'm thrilled to have taken up the role. I have over the last three years uh, worked, uh, if you like, tangentially on a, no- a number of uh, areas around climate change, working with Alok Sharma uh, uh, with the COP26 presidency. And my focus was on uh, the small island developing states. So obviously the Pacific Islands were part of that. The work I've done uh, in the Ministry of Defence across a number of areas. Uh, and of course, over the last uh, year, I've been the uh, Secretary of State for Trade uh, and I was the one who negotiated the New Zealand and the Australia trade deals. So I've had a, from different angles, uh, a close uh, interrelationship with uh, parts of uh, the Pacific region uh, for a while. And obviously, I launched the uh, India trade deal earlier in the year. So there's all these connections and the opportunity, really exciting opportunity for me to come uh, to look at the region if you like, in a holistic way through this wonderful role which the Prime Minister has created as the Minister of State of the Indo-Pacific is one that will set, uh, I hope, uh, a real clarity uh, for for the region and indeed for others who might be uh, paying attention that the UK is absolutely uh, committed to uh, building on what are, of course, long-standing friendships and partnerships uh, with uh, Indo-Pacific countries to really lean in and help uh, bring our expertise uh, and our support uh, and indeed our you know our commitment to the rules-based order and tackling particularly for the Pacific Islands the hugely urgent challenges that climate shocks are bringing. So that's a pretty uh, compelling explanation of how many of the pieces fit together and I think it is uh, it, it is important to note the uh, you know, your, your, your political career, the range of portfolios that you've covered and how really in a way this, this, this brings, brings those together. Looking at the United Kingdom uh, and its uh, engagement with the world, of course, uh, we have recently, only last year, in fact, a document called the Integrated Review, mm-hmm. which I guess 
in a policy context really captures or is intended to capture that holistic message uh, about about what Britain's seeking to do with all of its instruments of, uh, of, of power and influence in a pretty tough, contested world. For the benefit of our Australian listeners uh, and indeed our international listeners as well, can you explain what the integrated review is and was? It's clearly more than only defence policy. What was, it per- what was its purpose and, and how successful has it been? Absolutely. Uh, you're right, it is uh, and was intended to be more than what we had uh, historically done, which were sort of, you know, defence and security reviews, which uh, the UK has done over the years, you know, on a sort of five yearly cycle. Really important to make sure that we were uh, getting our uh, focus, our posture right from a defence perspective. But Boris Johnson was uh, determined to bring all those uh, UK assets, as you say, those uh, skills, that experience together to look at uh, post-Brexit, where we now have all all the tools back in our own armoury. Uh, in particular, obviously, trade is, uh, you know, a glaring, obvious sort of demonstration mm. of that. Uh, so we had uh, the Foreign Secretary, the Defence Secretary, the Home Secretary, myself, then a Secretary of State for International Development. Uh, and it was then at that point Liz Truss, Secretary of State for Trade, sitting together. So a really uh, all parts of the UK government that looked outwards, if you like, to the rest of the world to bring together both our own knowledge of uh, the threat picture, uh, what we had in our armory and how we wanted to move forwards and where our priorities would be. So in doing that, uh, as always, obviously the Euro-Atlantic uh, positioning, our leading uh, role as the uh, you know most senior uh, European member of NATO, always at the heart of our uh, you know local uh, region. Uh, but looking more widely than that, setting out across uh, the whole piece where uh, we as the UK felt those threats were. Uh, beyond, if you like, uh, the uh, issues of our own backyard. Uh, And of course, uh, Russia uh, and uh, China as a strategic competitor uh, were ones that we wanted to really highlight and think about and use uh, those government tools to make sure that we were doing the best by our citizens. Uh, So we brought together the uh, integrated review. Of course, what followed it from a defence perspective, to your point, Rory, was that we also had a defence command paper which came off the back of it, which set out what the uh, Ministry of Defence's part in that whole um, holistic picture was. And there was uh, a a big shift forwards in in terms of things like uh, forward deployment uh, of ships. And we can now see uh, HMS Tamar and HMS Spey, uh, two of our APVs in the Pacific region forward uh, deployed here as part of that outcome. So as we drew that together, we set forward what we saw as a sort of 10-year scenario we felt of the, uh, you know, changing uh, global picture. What, of course, has happened is uh, much to everyone's uh, horror and dismay, uh, Putin, uh, you know, Russia, always a uh, a difficult actor in the global picture, decided to invade uh, a sovereign nation and marched his tanks across the borders into Ukraine. In doing that, just a year after, mm. you know, we'd set out our position, we became very uh, cognizant of the fact that whilst obviously uh, doing all we could to support our Ukrainian friends, incredibly brave people who have stood up to this aggression uh, and working with all our friends and allies to try and provide all the support that we can to help them fight that aggressor, uh, we were conscious that we needed to really uh, look again at the the timeline, really, uh, of uh, that threat-based picture that we had ascertained. 
So our commitment in the integrated view had been a uh, much uh, closer uh, working relationship, uh, support and uh, friendship with our uh, Indo-Pacific friends. A lot of that, mm. of course, around trade. Uh, as I say, I um, uh, negotiated the Australian and the New Zealand trade deals. Really exciting. Our first two trade deals from scratch. Uh, uh, once mm. again, a, a sovereign nation, but looking at India, uh, a number of uh, things with Singapore, uh, are thinking about our application and hopefully uh, shortly to be accession to CPTPP around those economic issues, the importance that the UK uh, has uh, of leaning in uh, to this incredibly uh, fast-growing, uh, economically active region. And obviously, the UK wants to be part of that. So that was an important part of it. But actually, of course, we have seen changing uh, political and security issues as well. So uh, Rishi Sunak, our uh, Prime Minister has now uh, set us all the task of looking again uh, about thinking about that threat picture and the broader question. And I've uh, got the uh, the exciting opportunity to feed into that what uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, central issues are. And that's why mm. pretty much as soon as I was appointed, I hopped on a plane to get out here so I can really have some you know honest and frank conversations, which I've been able to do with uh, many uh you know, leading politicians and indeed uh, wider actors to get a sense of what things are like here uh, so that I can make sure that we as the UK uh, are putting our integrated review uh, refresh, as the Prime Minister's calling it, uh, on absolutely the right footing for our Indo-Pacific relationship. So let's stick with the Indo-Pacific, with this region. And in the integrated review and, and subsequent policy pronouncements, Britain's used this term, the tilt, the Indo-Pacific mm. tilt. Uh, now, with the uh, the refresh of the integrated review, with, with with revisiting some of its judgments and ambitions, you know, including in the context of um, Russia's uh, horrendous invasion of, of Ukraine, mm. I guess it'd be interesting to understand a little, little bit more about how you anticipate Britain's Indo-Pacific policy would or will evolve. Uh, you know, to my eyes or to my ears, I should say, um, the tilt sounds not quite fully committal. It's not you're not quite fully there, but you're, you're leaning in this direction. Um, and I guess there's always the question, are you tilting towards something and away from something else? I know this is all mm. about just choosing the vocabulary, but of course, words mm. really matter in, um, in crystallising policy decisions. So if you could sort of share a few more thoughts about what you think the, um, the direction of UK involvement in this region is going to be, uh, and perhaps address that question of whether in fact the United Kingdom can uh, play a strong role in in facing up to Russian aggression in uh, Ukraine against Ukraine, while at the same time being a serious strategic actor in this region. Uh, I think you're absolutely right, and you make a really interesting point about the work tilt. It's become part of our uh, normal vocabulary now in terms of uh, the message that we wanted to send, which is having had a very Euro-Atlantic focus for a long time. We want to uh, reach uh, more widely again and really perhaps re-establish um, the UK's commitments to our friends and allies uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so in that sense, it's a uh, stretching out of the UK uh, across uh, the globe again, rather than uh, leaning away from the Atlantic, which doesn't go away because that's our backyard. Yep. Uh, I think the, you know, in the last, you know, 18 months, we've had a, uh, you know, a busy time uh, really thinking uh, and acting on uh, what this means, thinking about uh, improving our security, our prosperity, our resilience. 
posture uh, in and with uh, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, you know, these trade agreements, you know, I'm a great uh, free trader uh, and believer in free trade to build those relationships, strengthen partnerships uh, through trade. Uh, so those have been really important with uh, Australia and New Zealand um, and in bilateral partnership agreements with India, with South Korea, with Singapore, uh, constantly thinking about how we can really strengthen relationships with those like-minded countries where, you know, both the economic and those partnership uh, relationships are so important, but also uh, moving uh, in the security and defence space to be uh, right alongside our important partners with things like the AUKUS partnership, uh, the opportunity, I hope, for the UK to demonstrate its absolutely uh Real, you know, real commitment to that. And if you think more widely around, I look at, I look at the map of the Indo-Pacific. A lot of it is blue. Mm. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, as I have a lot of water under my responsibilities, uh, which is wonderful. But actually, maritime security, uh, the challenges of, uh, you know, fisheries protection for those uh, smaller countries, mm. uh, how they can protect and uh, see the value of their uh, economic zones, making sure that they can. Uh, protect and defend those, look after them, not only from a fisheries perspective, but also from a climate perspective. The health of our oceans is an important part of uh, our climate challenge. So uh, I hope that uh, we are demonstrating in real terms already many real partnerships which have you know real outcomes uh, and commitments attached to them, but also we're going to continue to build on that. Uh, and with my uh, Pacific of the Indo-Pacific hat on, mm. uh, working with our uh, Pacific Island uh, you know, friends uh, and long, long-standing relationships with which we have in many, many of those countries. Six, obviously, Commonwealth countries amongst them to build uh, and to work alongside them uh, to give uh, to bring the technical assistance and the support that I hope the UK can have to help them in those really important issues around o- ocean life. Let's just stick with the Pacific for a moment. Mm. Uh, and as someone who I think has long advocated Australia's Indo-Pacific strategic horizons, I acknowledge that. Some of the needs of the Pacific are quite distinct and it's mm. become obviously a focus of not only development need but, but strategic competition with um, uh, with China's, I think, uh, quite challenging role there in recent, in recent years. What do you see as, um, if you like, realistic British ambitions to support the resilience of the Pacific? So I think we can come at it in a number of ways. Having uh, been in Vanuatu last week yep. for the Pacific Community Conference, uh, a great way for me for me to meet, uh, you know, right uh, at the start of my tenure in this post, uh, many of the important interlocutors uh, in the Pacific. Uh, top of their list and top of their list and top of their list was the challenges of the climate emergency. Yep. Uh, how they manage those. Of course, they're all different um, as ever. Uh, you know, every country, every Geology is different. There are many uh, different issues that need tackling. But that was uh, couldn't have been a clearer message uh, that was given to me by all those I spent time talking to. And uh, thinking about how we can work together on that is important. So one of the areas, and it was an issue that I was working on uh, when we were uh, running the COP26 uh, presidency, was the issues about the big international, you know, multilateral funds that are well-funded, that have you know, extensive resources, those funds are not flowing as they should to the small community projects, to the not very expensive, probably, uh, projects that can genuinely change the dial for community, can make them resilient, can help them adapt to what are known 
uh, weather changing patterns. Uh, you know, people you know who know their communities, who who understand uh, the climate shocks. We know where cyclones were normal; they're just stronger cyclones. Uh, where you know storm surges bring uh, the seas inland. You know, these are known, but they're stronger. So, being able to adapt. Uh, that's just not working properly. So it's one of the things I want to really tackle. You know, the, the UK is one of the uh, leading directors of the Green Climate Fund to think about how we uh, refocus the uh, investments that are made from there on the basis of vulnerability, not just only on GDP per capita, because actually uh, many of the Pacific Island states are are not the poorest countries in the world, uh, but they are indeed, without a doubt, the most vulnerable uh, to climate shocks. So thinking about how we can use the resources that are there and extensive much more effectively. Uh, you know, I'm a practical mum, you know, what do you, what do you do with what you've got is uh, very much my view of the world. So uh, I've committed to take that away and uh, work with the uh, Climate Fund and think about how we can do that. Uh, the Adaptation Fund is a smaller fund, but it, the funds flow more easily. Uh, so there are there mm -hmm. are you know what I'd call boring process things that aren't working as they should to support those most in need of the support that you know the the donor countries have made commitments to. So I think that's going to be a big part of my work. And uh, we've uh, just opened three more high commissions uh, across uh, the Pacific Islands. So I've got an amazing team and now a growing team uh, of uh, high commissioners and uh, experts from a number of sectors who will be able to, I hope, work really closely alongside uh, each of those governments and work out how we can most effectively work together to help them to tackle what are, you know, without a doubt, urgent, recurrent and, uh, you know, increasingly dangerous uh, weather patterns. Now, I think that's a very, uh, very useful point about, if you like, the the unlocking of resources that mm. are prospectively available uh, and are not necessarily, uh, you know, some kind of magical untapped well of, 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 mm. of British taxpayers' money, for mm. example, but it's, it, it's unlocking global funds in a, in a practical sense. There's clearly a, um, a web of potential partners for not only Pacific Island countries, but really a lot of the countries in the Indo-Pacific that have needs for greater resilience uh, development and so forth. Let's look at that web for a moment and think about where the United Kingdom could fit in, because obviously Australia's been very focused on defining its role, whether it's as a leader in some areas or whether it's a primary contributor or, or a supporter in the Pacific and Southeast Asia, perhaps in the Indian Ocean as well. Mm -hmm. But we look also at um, obviously the United States, at New Zealand, at Japan, which I think is very significant, at the role of Europe. Uh, France, of course, is a resident power mm -hmm. in this in this region uh, and others, India, uh, as well as becoming more active, I think, as a contributor. So I'm interested to know what your thinking is about how the UK could coordinate with those other stakeholders or, or others that maybe I haven't mentioned. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Maximising uh, our resource, our technical expertise, uh, our you know respective, as you say, historical relationships where uh, we have a depth of uh, understanding is important. And actually, uh, within the Pacific, so the Pacific Islanders have published their uh, 2050 report on uh, the Blue Pacific and mm. a number of us, uh, uh, the US, I might get this wrong, the US, us, uh, Australia, New Zealand, France and Germany, I think, check for me in case that's the wrong list, uh, have come together in 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 a, an offer uh, to the Pacific Island uh, forum uh, to think about how we can work coordinatedly uh, to support the, the, the many and really uh, 
thoughtfully put together sets of challenges that that 2050 uh, vision sets out. So I hope that we'll work incredibly effectively together. And again, I think our uh, teams of uh, diplomats and experts in country and in the region uh, will have an incredibly important role to play working alongside those uh, governments country by country, because as I say, they don't all have the same mm. uh, requirements or indeed challenges facing them. So I think that's being as coordinated as we can. And we've brought ourselves together as a, a sort of, if you like, a loose coalition partners in the Blue Pacific. I think we've named ourselves uh, really just a, a, an opportunity for us to work as effectively together. And that's just really, um, you know, sort of being brought together will be an opportunity for us to uh, think at a, at a gritty practical mm. level what that means. Uh, we're looking, the UK's kind of committed to take on the, uh, you know, the climate uh, challenges uh, because obviously we have enormous expertise now after two years uh, with the COP presidency and a, a huge commitment which Alok Sharma led to drive uh, incredible uh, changes in, in in what I call the colour of money. So investors looking to invest uh, with clean energy projects, uh, thinking about uh, investing resiliently and how uh, those sorts of uh, changes to the way projects are done, building is done, uh, roads are built. You know, the UK mm. has led the way on that. We want to make sure that that technical uh, knowledge can be, you know, put to best use you know, wherever it's needed, but also particularly in these vulnerable countries. So this is about knowledge and standards uh, as much as necessarily mm. the, the, the quantum I of, think that's right. of resources. Could I ask, um, just still on the UK and the Pacific, and then I want to, I do want to move to the relationship with Australia. And I do, I think you mentioned AUKUS earlier. I think mm. we, we certainly should talk about AUKUS, but um, this is a question which I guess Australia faces in its own way. I think uh, France has faced as well. You know, how does a former colonial power... Um, convince small, vulnerable countries in the region that you're here to help. Uh, and I would just make the observation that one of the one of the concerns uh, that I've had, and that some observers in Australia have had when we when we look at China's role in the Pacific now, is that mm. it's exhibiting, uh, in my view, some of the um, the most troubling characteristics of mm. <laughs> of um, of colonialism in the way it's approaching the region. But how do you get over that baggage of history that we all carry? Well, I hope that we uh, present our credentials as a uh, friend and partner uh, in a modern and practical way. Uh, we want to help if we're asked to do so. If if uh, what we can bring to the table isn't of use, uh, we we don't you know wish to impose what we uh, are finding. And I've found certainly in the last ten days is a, a real excitement that the UK is back and much more actively engaged, and that there are areas of expertise, as I say, which we can. Uh, bring to the party, which are genuinely useful mm. uh, and hopefully can be impactful too. But this is uh, very much a partnership relationship that we want to uh, do, you know, work with uh, each uh, government and, you know, civil society to help uh, them deliver what it is they want for their citizens. That's uh, very much the modern UK way. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's move to the the military dimension of security and stability in the Indo-Pacific. And I think you've mentioned already, obviously, the um, the fact that Britain now has essentially two offshore patrol vessels mm. operating uh, pretty much permanently in, in, in the region. Uh, one of them, of course, was, was, was I think, you know, one of the first, I think the first uh, naval responder to the uh, the volcano and tsunami uh, that devastated mm. Tonga early uh, earlier this year. So uh, there's something substantial and practical there, but it's still obviously only a relatively small contribution, not only in terms of uh, of Britain's overall military capability, but in terms of the needs of this region, obviously having a uh, carrier uh, visit every couple of years is is fantastic at one level, but again, it's not a permanent presence. Uh, So how do you see the logic and the purpose of a military dimension to to Britain's security contribution in the Indo-Pacific? So as part of the integrated review, um, you know, military dimension, if you like, that was uh, this forward basing uh, of two British ships was part of that commitment to demonstrate, and as you say, in a very practical way, uh, our ability to come and uh, support around fisheries protection uh, and around, of course, humanitarian disaster relief, which sadly was... Uh, proved necessary very early on in uh, HMS Tamar's uh, arrival. Fantastic that she was able uh, to help. I was talking to the foreign minister of uh, Tonga last week and uh, you know, very some very touching uh, stories that she shared. But that uh, realization that you know they lost all communications abilities. So the, you know, as as the uh, ship's team had said to me, you know, they didn't know what to pack, mm. you know, because nobody could get through to find out what was what. But actually, uh, you know, uh, a British ship and, you know, packed all the things that you'd hope you might need and rocked up anyway uh, to do, you know, what they could uh, to help. And I think that uh, commitment, you know, our sailors, uh, we do this sort of humanitarian last relief work in the Caribbean. We have a, uh, a ship always forward based over there because, again, uh, communities of small island uh, states who have, you know, regular uh, debilitating, you know, mm. hurricanes in their case. Um, so uh, I hope that this is, you know, a, a genuine practical demonstration uh, of the UK uh, and our uh, naval capability uh, here in the region. We are uh, will continue to do that. And actually, our, our Royal Navy sailors are very proud of the work they're doing here. They're loving uh, being part of this community and uh, bringing some of their skills uh, to support uh, those island communities. So I think that's a very clear one. You mentioned um, uh, the transfer of, of our carrier strike mm. group uh, last year through uh, through the Indo-Pacific, well, sort of almost a round-the-world uh, trip, but really importantly in doing a lot of partnership um, exercises with uh, fellow uh, countries through the Pacific, um, a lot of work with Japan, uh, with South Korea on the way through, and the Indian uh, Navy and Air Force. Those were really uh, 
important for us, again, to demonstrate uh, our commitment and those important issues around the ability to work with friends and allies in the military as well as in other areas, uh, that interoperability and that understanding of each other's uh, doctrines so that should we, God forbid, have to uh, you know, work together in a genuinely uh, difficult environment, we know each other well. So that's opportunity to do that. But also, uh, and you know, I'm hugely proud of uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Prince of Wales, uh, extraordinary ships there, fifth generation uh, aircraft carriers. Um, they are, you know, they're floating airfields. So that's what an aircraft carrier is. But they're also, I hope, uh, and we're, you know, we champion them as they travel the world, an opportunity to demonstrate what uh, the UK is about. We're about uh, hospitality. We're about bringing people together. It's a wonderful uh, diplomatic platform as well. And as uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth toured, uh, that we brought together in uh, visits to 40 different countries, the opportunity for the UK to engage uh, with each each one of those uh, countries, their military, their uh, politicians, their diplomatic calls, their businesses, their civil society. That's what uh, we want to make sure uh, that those countries in the Indo-Pacific know, know in a very real sense that uh, we are absolutely serious when we say we want to have more engagement uh, and more uh, daily uh, interaction with that. But if necessary, to make it clear that we are absolutely uh, here to support and defend those international rules of law, those uh, you know uh, free flowing uh, of trade, management of uh, open seas, all those issues are incredibly important to us for UK interests as well as for our friends and allies' interests. Uh, and uh, that was uh, the intent. And I know that uh, we will continue to work with friends and allies in the years ahead to continue to demonstrate that. And I think, uh, Minister, it's, that's all that, that's all good and right, but you're also being a, a little diplomatic there where you talk about the, the things that aircraft carriers are, are good for. Of course, they're also, uh, as you say, there's also that, that very clear but implicit message, uh, I think, of, of strategic uh, value and intent and, mm. and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, deterrence and, uh, and war fighting is, mm. is, is what those capabilities are developed for. So if you look at the Indo-Pacific and if you look at the really, in my view, the global strategic theatre, if you look at what, what Russia's done with uh, Putin's aggression, if you look at the, the relationship between China and Russia, which mm-hmm. I think is concerning many of us, if you look at the coercive activity and the the rapid military modernization that many of us have seen coming out of China in recent years it's not necessarily in fact it's it's pretty clear that there are some very messy clouds on the horizon mm. here in the Indo-Pacific and so from an Australian perspective we're now looking to improve our own defense capability AUKUS is a big part of that mm-hmm. story. Um, the Australia, UK, US, essentially strategic technology <coughs> sharing arrangement. And of course, that goes to, among other things, uh, a nuclear powered submarine fleet mm-hmm. for Australia. What is AUKUS about, in your view, from a British perspective? So, AUKUS is a really exciting partnership. Uh, we're you know, very honoured and proud when uh, Australia decided that that was uh, the direction of travel that you wanted to take uh, to be part of the discussions that have ensued since and indeed uh, a strong and technical partnership that is now in full swing as uh, all three uh, parties come together to think about uh, working through the technicalities of it. I think really importantly, and one of the things I've uh, noticed actually in the last 10 days talking to all sorts of different people uh, is that uh, there is a level of um, 
perhaps unwitting, but also perhaps conscious disinformation about uh, creating a sense of fear that Australia will have a new technology. So a nuclear powered submarine is one that uh, is cleaner. So with my green hat on, it's cleaner than a diesel powered submarine. Uh, it can go further. I'll interrupt you there. That's a big, that, I'll interrupt you. That, that, that's mm. a big call when we have some politicians uh, in, in the, the Greens party in Australia calling these things floating Chernobyls. But um, I think that's, it, it is an important point. So, but then that, that's, these are the discussions that we need to have, I think, to reassure. So, uh, we and the uh, US have been, uh, driving these sorts of submarines for decades. Uh, we have a very, uh, very strict and very thorough and very safe environment within which they work. And of course, that's one of the uh, areas that the Australian uh, government and teams are, will be bringing together is this regulatory require, you know, requirements mm. and legal frameworks to ensure that uh, Australia can uh, look after and drive these submarines uh, in a way that is appropriate. But, uh, you know, other countries do too. And I think we perhaps forget that uh, you know, the Chinese are driving uh, nuclear-powered submarines around the area too. This is not a, a, a new technology yeah. in, in that sense. It's a very uh, effective and modern uh, one. But it's important, but it's also really going to be uh, important as, I mean, the Australian Navy and the Royal Navy of a sort of similar size, and uh, the Australian Navy has, you know, was a... a a cousin uh, of of the Royal Navy, uh, that relationship will be really important over the years. And to my point earlier about uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth, as she uh, traversed the globe working uh, with exercises with uh, other countries, that interoperability, the opportunity for our navies to work more closely together, uh, because of course, much of what our navies do is, is support, uh, as I said, keeping our uh, waterways uh, free-flowing for our trade to flow, you know, so important to our citizens who then don't have to think about the fact that the goods that come from around the world can get to them safely day in, day out, uh, but also uh, managing fisheries, thinking about those issues of maritime security uh, and maintenance of, uh, you know, protecting uh, individual countries' uh, you know, rights around their islands and countries. So, the opportunity for Australia to be able to be a really strong partner with a kit that will be the next generation of kit. The Collins class will be uh, reaching the end of her natural life, uh, you know, in the next few years. This will be a next generational kit, but it will be a really exciting opportunity industrially, exciting for us all to work together, to share our expertise uh, and stand together. You know, let's be clear about what's important to us. It's about stability. It's about the rule of law uh, and it's about uh, maintaining uh, maintaining that not only for ourselves, but also for our friends and allies. So I think it's a really exciting project. It will have, I think, a long-term uh, long relationship. By definition, submarines tend to last about 50 years. So this is a very long-term partnership that we're bringing together uh, and that we will all work very closely to do more as our, as guardians of uh, maintaining those free-flowing seas. So if I, if I can draw a kind of um, – if I can draw a subtext to a lot of what you've said there uh, – AUKUS is not only from a British perspective about um, about industry, about technology cooperation, but there is a strategic purpose there. It's also a signal of commitment Absolutely. To, this, to this region. Absolutely right. So, of course, AUKUS is, um, and, and whichever direction AUKUS decisions go in in the, in, in the months ahead, AUKUS is about not only uh, nuclear-powered submarines, but also about uh, a so-called Pillar 2, as our mm -hmm. uh, bureaucrats like to call it, a um, a whole body of work of developing cooperation in critical and cutting-edge technologies that, that may have military applications. From an Australian perspective, this is about giving us a defensive edge 
in our region, whether it's in, in cyber, in quantum, and mm. uh, hypersonics uh, and so forth. Uh, can you comment at all on the, um, I guess, the potential of Pillar 2 in AUKUS from a British perspective? So I'm not involved in uh, those details. I think the focus has been around Pillar 1, uh, the, you know, the submarine part of the, uh, if you like, the initial stages uh, of this long, long-term AUKUS partnership. But I think exactly as you say, uh, the idea will be to work together, to share our uh, our technical skills, our brilliant, you know, next generation who have uh, ideas and, you know, future creativity that has yet to be uh, tapped into to make sure that we are maximising uh, that because we know that uh, we are, you know, three nations committed with absolutely the same uh, sets of values and, uh, you know, the belief in the rule of law and of sovereignty uh, and making sure that we do have uh, you, those tools available to protect uh, and to defend and to deter those malign actors who might wish us and our neighbours harm. And, and, and I would note that if you're talking multi-generational cooperation, really, mm. under AUKUS, you know, decades, 50 years, uh, you know, historic partnership, that we're in the very early days here. So That's I, right. I, I'd like to see, you know, imagine that both pillars will, will evolve. I think we've got a very uh, substantial ecosystem here of industry and universities who mm. want to play, and um, looking forward to seeing seeing that replicated among the three mm. <clears throat> among the three countries. Uh, but I might move now to the bilateral relationship mm. in the broad, uh, the Australia UK relationship, and of course, it's one of those relationships that goes much much deeper than diplomacy in any kind of conventional sense, uh, you know, very deep historical relations, cultural relations. Sometimes we, you know, sometimes we're divided by common language um, <laughs> uh, or by cricket, but, you know. <laughs> Some things are it's, inevitable. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a relationship that's gone through many evolutions. And mm. I think in the last few years, we're looking with fresh eyes at the potential of that relationship, I think, as you mentioned, the free trade um, mm -hmm. agreement, of course, uh, as an example of that, it's not going to be a relationship that's confined to what we do together in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, thinking globally, I guess, how do you see the future of uh, Australia-UK cooperation globally, whether it's on um, public goods in this region, whether it's elsewhere in the world, whether it's the, the challenges you face in Europe, climate change, interested to know what your vision is? I think that's a really fair challenge. I think we start uh, from, as you say, a very long-standing uh, close relationship. We're family, really. I think you know that's how uh, I, I think of Australia. Uh, and I hope Australia thinks of us. We don't always get on. As you say, sometimes we fight, mostly over sport. Uh, and you often win, which is frustrating, but we keep working on it. But actually, it's about how we work together to uh, sustain what we consider to be those really important values and how we can demonstrate that uh, to the rest of the world together. Uh, and it isn't confined to the Indo-Pacific without a doubt. I mean, incredible uh, support, uh, I mean, in a very practical sense, from Australia around uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, supporting with military training and other ways, those really uh, practical demonstrations, you know, when, when the pressure's on, actually, who can you count on? Uh, and we know that we can always count on Australia, and I hope Australia knows that they can always count on the UK. That relationship and how we build that in what is, I think to your point, we, we've we lived perhaps in a world that we felt was uh, a bit more benign and has become less benign uh, in recent years. And therefore, uh, we've got to all be on our mettle and we've got to uh, make sure that we are 
absolutely, uh, you know, up to scratch on being able to stand firmly together against those who would wish our citizens uh, harm in any way. Uh, that comes in many forms in the modern world. Uh, so working together uh, to really think about that. So when we brought the trade deal together, it's not only about goods and services, though it is. Uh, it's about mobility. It's about how our young people can uh, go from country to country and bring their skills uh, to bear to really uh, work together, build those human relationships, but also a huge amount around climate. We had uh, the first uh, of any uh, Australian trade deal, a chapter around the environment. So a very broad ranging discussion about what that means, an opportunity for us to work together to tackle uh, the challenges, whether they be technical solutions, whether they be uh, practical issues. So we're looking, uh, you know, how do we how do we support, uh, you know, some of the challenges that Australia is facing in terms of climate shocks, all sorts of levels of interrelationship, uh, which are based around, you know, both those comfortable, you know, happy things like, you know, great trade, amazing businesses, you know, uh, the challenge of us selling you English sparkling wine, a great new thing. I highly recommend it. Or indeed, we'll think about that. Or, indeed <laughs> or indeed, some of your finest, which are the most popular uh, in many a British supermarket. Those, those many, many layers. And I think we are uh, because, uh, you know, we're family, but because we feel we have to all just be a bit more proactive and demonstrate uh, to the world that that allied relationship is absolutely rock solid. And so before we wrap up, it would be just useful maybe to hear uh, your picture of the Britain that we're engaging mm. with. Uh, I mean, this year, of course, has been such a momentous year in so many ways. Uh, and on the one hand, we've seen, you know, we have seen Britain play a really, a really um, critical role in pushing back against Russia's aggression. And Standing up for the interests uh, and I think universal values mm. that that we share. On the other hand, we've seen uh, you know the economic shock I think that's hit uh, that's hit Britain and so much of the world mm. in recent months, and that does raise questions for us about um, you know resilience and staying power. And of course, uh, the death of um, of Queen Elizabeth this year, the passing of uh, Her Majesty, and that. That uh, that moment in history, that that a very sombre moment, mm. and that moment that I think uh, has brought a lot of Australians to reflect as well on, on on our relationship with Britain. What is the contemporary Britain that you're representing here, or that or that you see as facing up to the challenges of the next few years? Uh, you set out absolutely uh, the challenges of 2022. Uh, been, I think they've been tough uh, across the world. I think Australia has suffered too. You've you didn't uh, throw into that mix that the previous two years have been uh, creating unbelievable pressures and difficulties because of COVID nineteen and the and, and I didn't mention political instability. As no, well. no, no, no. Well, that's that's. Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm reliably informed that Australia has had one more prime minister in the last ten years than we have. So we're you know we're on a par. Uh, but actually, the challenge both, both stabilising now, perhaps. Yes. Well, I think both. What's so interesting uh, is. You know, the, our political changes have come. The the politics moves much like everything else at an incredible pace at the moment, uh, and that is, you know, uh, requires management. And I think we have seen over the course of the summer in the UK uh, a management of that, where uh, colleagues felt that there was a need for a change. That is indeed what's happened. You know, we we remain an incredibly stable uh, country with citizens who know that uh, the democratic uh, environment within which they have their political leadership uh, assures them. Uh, their voice. We will have obviously a general election uh, 
uh, in the next two years where no doubt uh, voters will uh, share their views at the time. But I think we have had this extraordinarily challenging year. And I'm incredibly proud of the modern Britain uh, that you talk about, one where, you know, through COVID, uh, our political leadership led at the time by Boris Johnson, through everything at the challenges of trying to uh, find a vaccine using all our resources, all our incredible scientific leadership uh, to do that, not only for ourselves, because we knew that so much of the rest of the world would not be able to have that resource available to them. And in, in order to get beyond the pandemic and to allow uh, the world to get back to normal, uh, we had an enormous responsibility to do that. Incredibly proud of uh, the teams uh, in Oxford, uh, AstraZeneca, who uh, found, uh, you know, a vaccine which has, you know, been delivered in its billions around the world. Uh, a modern Britain where, uh, when the challenge of, uh, you know, a sovereign state in Ukraine is invaded by its, uh, you know, dictator neighbour, we don't stand and comment about it. We get stuck in and we do everything we can to help them because we believe absolutely in sovereign statehood. Uh, and we don't believe it to talk about it. We believe it and we demonstrate that because if we don't demonstrate it and if we don't stand up for what we believe in, we cannot expect others to do the same. So we are a modern Britain where uh, we walk the talk. Uh, and that will continue to be the case, whatever the challenges that are thrown at us all. And I fear our world, I often feel like the planet is being shaken. It's as if someone's uh, giving it a bit of a shake and no one quite knows where it's going to stabilise. But in that instability, uh, we must be prepared. We must be resilient. I think the challenges through COVID of looking at resilience of supply chains, working with friends and allies to ensure that we could look after our citizens uh, and ensure that the basics were not uh, put uh, in the scarcity was a real challenge for all of us. We had become, I would use the word complacent about these things, uh, an assumption perhaps that the world somehow uh, was going to stay the same. I was brought up by uh, a granny and a mum who always said, be prepared because you never know what's coming around the corner. Uh, and that was a very good piece of advice. That's how I live my life. But I think we had become too relaxed uh, and we have got to gear up and remember that we must be prepared and we must uh, think and work more closely with our friends and allies so that we can, if there are shocks and unexpected turns in the road, be able to work together uh, to deal with whatever comes. So a modern Britain uh, is one that I hope all our friends and allies will always want to stand alongside and work with. Uh, we are a reliable friend. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. Uh, that was uh, Anne-Marie uh, Trevelyan, who's the UK Minister of State for the Indo-Pacific. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. 